0: Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. I'm looking for support in 2018 to keep the show going and have started a GoFundMe. If the show has been of any help to you on your writing journey, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating so that I can continue airing. Visit GoFundMe.com and search for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire to contribute. Today's guest is Tricia Springstub, author of Picture Books, Chapter Books, and Novels for Middle Grade Readers. Tricia joined me today to talk about the transition of changing from being a lover of stories to a writer of them and why she writes for the age groups she does. What would happen if Queen Victoria was killed early in her reign? The Queen of England, Coronation, by Courtney Brandt, features an alternate steampunk history of London starting in 1840. Will the new Queen's reign be over before it has a chance to begin? Download the novel to find out. From the bio on your website, it seems as if you were always a reader, but came to the realization that you wanted to try your hand at writing a little later. So what was the moment for you that you realized you wanted to make that transition from a reader to a writer?
1: It's an interesting question. This week I did a school visit where a fourth grader asked me which I liked better, reading or writing, and mm-hmm. I was, whoa, I can't possibly answer that one. <laughs> I don't think there was one defining moment when I morphed from a sort of crazed reader to a crazed reader and writer. I'd always kept a journal, and I was in the habit of writing very long letters back in the day when people still wrote long letters and used snail mail with their friends and families. But I guess the idea that I could write fiction and maybe even publish it, it didn't occur to me till I was in my late 20s and early 30s. And I think this is one reason I love doing school visits is sometimes I wish that I'd met a real life, regular writer earlier in my life. When I go to schools, I really, you know, show kids pictures of myself as a dorky little kid and I show them my cats and my messy desk. And I really want them to understand that writers are just people who have developed not just a speaking voice, but another voice, a writing voice. And I wish that it had dawned on me a lot earlier that maybe I could do that. I don't know, you know, who knows how these things happen. I came from a very pragmatic family. Risk-taking was definitely not encouraged. But slowly but surely, the urge to write just crept up on me. I think it's
0: interesting that you mentioned being from a really pragmatic family because writing and, in general, any arts are not going to supply you with a sufficient income to keep you clothed and fed and sheltered. I myself wanted to be a writer from a young age. Uh, and I remember asking my dad, I graduated from high school and I was accepted to college. And I said, you know what? What if I don't go to college? What if I just try to be a writer? And he was like, yeah, you're going to college. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly believe that if I had not gone to college and really deepened my appreciation of literature and becoming a very close yeah. I would not have become a writer, or perhaps not as good of a writer. I do believe that even though I never took writing classes, my classes in English literature and attending college in general broadened my worldview, deepened my understanding, all of those things.
1: I actually went to college in the late 60s and early 70s, and I was a very socially conscious and somewhat socially active person, as most people in my generation were then. And I studied sociology. I did many social welfare jobs when I first graduated from college, and they all turned out to be with kids. Surprise, surprise. Here I was avoiding reading, deliberately avoiding reading because I wanted to be directed so that I would have this career in social work. Yet I started to realize that my favorite part of studying sociology was reading all the case studies because that was as close as it came to like reading fiction reading these real life accounts of people and their struggles. So I could not get away from just loving stories, even when I was trying to be very pragmatic. All those jobs that I did have with kids, which is what I was doing through my twenties and into my early thirties and, and, and beyond. I mean, I, like you say, I was working while I was writing, they all centered on children. That was another sort of light bulb for me to, to help me realize that, you know, I know what's making these kids laugh. I know what's making them scared. I know what's, they think is really unfair and unjust and they want to see changed. And wow, I could write about that. Just never know how life is going to conspire to (laughs) come around to who you become. I also think
0: having a sociology background taught you, I'm sure, so much about humans and especially yeah. empathy. And you must, you must have empathy if you want to be a good writer. So that's another great angle. I think anything you learn as a human being is useful to you as a writer.
1: And that's another thing. And you know, I talk to kids, they say, so how much time do you spend writing? You know, how, and they're always impressed if I say two or three hours a day. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I try to explain to them too, that being a writer is just a constant. You're thinking, you have your radar out for ideas. It's not just when you're sitting down with the pencil and paper or the keyboard. It's, it's always.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You always have to be on and you always have to be observing. I've often heard writers described, or at least our minds are described as lint balls. Yeah. <laughs> we just collect things and then eventually all of those things might come together or you pick some, you pull some out, you pull the different colored lint out and you stick it together mm-hmm. and you're like, I made a story out of that. Right. I hadn't heard the lint ball one. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) I think it's very accurate. Actual writing doesn't start when you pick up the pencil. That's the truth. I had someone reach out to me and ask if a teenager could job shadow me. And I was like, you know, I don't want to tell you no, but I also don't have any idea how to do a job shadow for a writer because if you were to sit and watch me type, you're not going to learn anything about that, what that means, what it means to be a writer. But I also can't exhibit to you how my mind works or something that just happened that makes me go, oh, maybe this, I, unless you actually have a window into my mind, it's almost impossible for someone to actually job shadow a writer.
1: I have had kids ask me to do that also. And the best I can do is to offer to critique their own work. I'm very inarticulate about the whole process of writing myself. It's very hard for me to pin down how it happens. I do go to schools a lot and kids will say, well, why did you decide to name the character this? And why did you do that? Why why couldn't she do this? And I try to act like I know, but really (laughs) a lot of the time I can't even remember how I came to that decision. Yep, that is so true. I end up
0: so often (laughs) answering similar questions. And the one I get the most is, Where did you get that idea? And sometimes I have an answer. Sometimes I know Mm -hmm. where the idea came from. But most of the time, I'm like, I don't know, guys. Yeah. It was given to me. It was a gift. It was a gift that fell from the sky. You write everything from picture books to middle grade fiction. Do you have a particular age group that you enjoy working with more?
1: You know, I am really lucky that I get to write for all those different age groups, preschool through middle school. Picture books is the hardest form for me because every single word counts, which is pretty exacting and terrifying. Collaborating with an illustrator is just so much fun. And to see your work take on, you know, literally a whole new dimension I love that. And I've been really lucky to get some terrific illustrators who have just made my work more than it was. The sum of their art and my words are greater than the sum of the parts. (laughs) I love that whole process. Chapter books are just this really sweet, happy bridge between the picture book and the middle grade novel. The middle grade novel It might be my favorite, although I'm pretty wishy-washy about saying favorites, but it's where I get to do the deepest exploration of character and the most nuanced themes. And also, I think when I'm writing for that age, I'm writing for what I think of as the golden age of reading in people's lives. Every single person I've ever asked has one book that they remember, and it's usually from the ages between maybe nine and 13 that they read themselves or that a teacher read to them and it stayed with them all their lives. So it's kind of the age to when, if they're going to become lifelong readers, that's probably when it happens. That's an age when there's always some book that somebody carries around in their heart for the rest of their life.
0: I would be terrified to try to write a picture book, have every word matter so
1: much. People say this and it's true. It's as close as you can come to writing poetry, I think.
0: So when it works, it's
1: it's just a gift.
0: Because I tend to lean darker. Material and my content is always a little darker. I have never attempted or wanted to write a middle grade, but I have read some middle grade that attacks big subjects, hard subjects. So I know it's possible, but I struggle with writing for that age group. I've tried once. I wrote a short story and I thought I did a pretty good job and I gave it to my nephew who was at the time in that age range. And he was like, well, I have some thoughts, Aunt Mindy. Oh, no. I don't have that voice. People that do, I'm always very impressed because, as you're saying, that age group, if you can be the window yeah. that lets them into this world, and if you can be the person that gets them addicted to reading, that's a huge compliment and a wonderful mm-hmm. place to be.
1: I think for almost all of kids' literature, once they do discover your books, I mean, you could not find a more loyal, passionate fan that is so gratifying. I just think writing for any, all these ages is, I can't imagine why anyone would write, write adult fiction, although I can't imagine, but I just think it's so, for anyone to say, why do you choose to write for kids? I mean, I could turn around and say, well, why do you choose to write for adults? I feel such a responsibility to that age. People ask us that all the time. That is a
0: question we get constantly when we're doing panels. Why do you write for teens? Why do you write for middle grade? Why do you write for children? And no one ever asks an adult writer why they choose to write right. for adults. Right. <laughs> right. And I think that's a great question. Why? Why are you writing for adults? Right. <laughs> boring. What are you doing? <laughs> My answer to that question is, I know what adult life is like you get up and you go to work and then you come home and you eat dinner and you watch some TV and you go to bed and In the morning you get up and you go to work. And really? so it's like, there's no yes. break in there. There's no room for a story in there. Right. And I demand realism. I don't want suddenly some, massive life change to happen or someone gets excused from their job for two weeks because they need to fly on a plane to Rome. whatever like yeah there has to be a real reason and to actually break out of the routine of daily adult life is very difficult that's one of the reasons I don't write for adults is because there's not a lot of room for magic in our lives
1: and I think for kids every story is still new. There's a freshness to it and they bring a curiosity to it. And they also bring that word empathy will come up again and again, whenever I talk about writing in general, like you said, but for kids, I mean, when you read out loud to kids and you just watch their faces, stories matter so much to them. What happens to these characters? It happens to them as they're listening or as they're reading themselves. It's just a I think it's a an intensity and a passion that is brought to the word that I don't, it, I find it hard to duplicate myself, even at in this point in my life, as much as I love reading. It's just never exactly the same as when you're 11 or 12 or 13.
0: They're very ready to drop a suspension of disbelief.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: They're ready to drop that at any time, and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's a lovely, Mm -hmm. lovely escape. They have a trap door out of reality that Mm -hmm. we have learned not to use as much, I think. Mm
1: -hmm. Compartmentalize ourselves in different ways. And um, like you say, their doors just all fly open.
0: Coming up, school visits. Pro tip, don't step on the littlest ones. Also, how Trisha takes real-life inspiration and uses them in her fiction. Maria and Lily are their elite boarding school's ultimate power couple, and they're willing to do anything, absolutely anything, to make their dreams come true. But when they try to unseat campus golden child Delilah, feuds turn into fatalities, and madness begins to blur the distinction between what's real and what is imagined. From author Robin Talley comes As I Descended, a lesbian Macbeth retelling that Booklist called an intriguing, appropriately atmospheric take on one of Shakespeare's most spine-tingling plays. Okay. You do a lot of school visits. Uh-huh. And that is something that I hear a lot of authors talking amongst ourselves because it is intimidating. No matter what age, I mean, I'm accustomed to working with teenagers because I did work in the school system for so long, but I actually get nervous when I'm going in front of the little kids. One time I accidentally said, I think I said crap, and they all oh, were like, oh, oh no, you said a bad word. And like they were genuinely <laughs> upset that I said crap. And I was like, oh my yeah. gosh, I'm so sorry, you guys. Yeah. So, anyway, <laughs> tell us about how you handle a school visit as an author, but then also. Just how you handle, handle the little ones and handle crowd control.
1: And I do have books for kids really from kindergarten through seventh or eighth grade. So I'm really an all-purpose school visitor. <laughs> they can get, have me do like a whole school if they want. But the really little guys, the hardest things is not to step on them. The teachers will have them, you know, stay behind the green line. But the more they listen and they're sitting on their little bottoms, you know, they scoot forward, forward, yeah. forward as they get more and more interested. So you have to be really careful if you're like me and you get excited and start walking around not to step on them. I try to keep it interactive. I have slides. And like I said, I show my cats. That's always a big hit. I read to them. Oh, I do things like I have Cody in the fountain of happiness. Sometimes I'll draw, draw in quotes, because I can't draw, a sort of a fountain, and then I'll ask them to tell me things that make them happy, you know, and mm-hmm. we write them and we make our own personal class fountain of happiness. So I try to keep it moving and interactive. I get nervous ahead of time, but then somehow, I don't know, there's just this like chemistry when they're all sitting there and looking up that happens between us. And I don't know, it just works. The best, of course, is. If you go to a school where the teachers or the librarians have prepared the kids, so you're not suddenly this stranger standing in front of them talking, you know, they know they have some anticipation and Mm -hmm. some familiarity with your work. And then they really are eager to ask questions and tell you what they thought. That's really the best that that happens. Not always. (laughs) Um, You know, you know, Mindy, I mean, being a writer is like one of the most solitary professions. So to get to really interact with kids, it's almost always an enormous boost for me. I mean, I go back exhausted at the end of the day. I, I can't talk to anybody for the rest of the day. I'll go back like so pumped up, you know, to realize that these kids love stories and I have that responsibility to them and um, I want to do the best I can and to give them the best story I can make. I do a lot of Skype visits too. You do them in your pajama bottoms and they take less energy. They're second best actually visiting kids. Being in front of them is important. They're just some indefinable chemistry that happens. The worst is I go in and they have me in the gym. They're going to have third, fourth, and fifth all together. So I'm standing there looking up at bleachers with 300 kids.
0: I think the biggest thing for me when you do a gym presentation Is as you're saying, they are looking down on you. It's actually all about positioning in a lot of ways. If you're on a stage, you can hold their attention better simply because you're higher. There's a lot of positioning involved. And I do try Mm -hmm. to think about that when I am in the gymnasium. There's still a lot of things you can do, just like moving, crossing back and forth, things to make sure that you're active so they're looking at you. And as you were saying, I have slides, but they're not. They're actually there for me more than for the kids, so that I know what uh, I'm talking about next. Uh-huh,
1: right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true too. It's fun to talk to other writers too, because everybody has their school visit horror story. Uh-huh. One of my favorite ones is a friend of mine who drove to the wrong school. <gasps> oh <no. laughs> she had just gotten her days mixed up and she walked into the office and said, Well, I'm the author and I'm here. And they're like, What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and my. she was supposed to be like you know 50 miles away I had my car take me to the wrong place once because
0: I wasn't familiar with where I was going and and they took me to the wrong place and I was like I am at a beer distribution center <laughs> so I was like I had to call the school and I ended up being like 20 yeah. minutes late and I felt yeah. stupid yeah. And that's on
1: me. That's nobody else's fault. Yeah. Sometimes getting there is half the battle. <laughs>
0: it really is. I mean, I yeah. do, I feel better once I'm there because it's like, okay, I'm not late. I'm in the right place. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you get a lot of your ideas from real life events and readers can see on your website what inspired each of your books. So have you ever had any real life inspirations that you would have liked to work into fiction, but you haven't found the right vehicle for it yet?
1: Oh Lord, yes. I <laughs> <My laughs> notebooks, notebooks full of ideas, the kernels that never popped. <laughs> I recently had a nice experience though, because years and years ago, a friend of mine told me a story. She's a big gardener and she was out every day digging in her garden. And there was a little boy next door who would come over and he would bring his little spoon and he would dig, dig, dig next to her. And and he is very diligent about it and serious. And, and he was looking for a treasure, oh. buried, buried treasure. And he would just come every day. And she was starting to feel <laughs> really bad for him. One night, she went out in the garden and she buried a little jar of coins. Mm-hmm. And the next day when he came, he dug them up in Eureka! He had found the treasure that he had been so patiently you know, looking for. And I just thought that was the best story. I mean, it was a a really good anecdote, but I didn't know how to turn it into an actual story that had art. So I must have thought about that on and off for years, literally years, and I tried to write it. And then it suddenly, not suddenly, it after many years came to me, (laughs) the possibility that not only would the adult bury something, but how about if the child buried something for the adult to find? And it fell together. And Ken bought it. It's going to be published in 2020. That's how long picture books take. That was an idea that I just was never sure. I mean, it was from my real life. It was a good idea. I just didn't know if it would ever see light it will thank goodness i have another friend who fixes stuff people actually leave things on her doorstep you know like figurines that have lost their heads or mm-hmm. a treasured platter that got dropped at thanksgiving and she fixes them she will create the head she'll reglaze them her motto is um, as if it never happened i really want to use her in the story i haven't figured that one out yet There are loads of ideas in my little, many little books. Someone can leave their (laughs)
0: broken heart at her doorstep. Exactly. Exactly. I love that you have an example that worked out and sold. And then I love that you have one that you're like, I don't know what I want to do with this, but I want to do something. Mm -hmm. I have one of those too. I have, I use the term neighbor, but I live in the middle of nowhere. So what I mean is that I could walk there if I had to, but it's not Uh, within sight. The neighbor's cat got hit out here nobody does anything about the road cow unless it's your pet things aren't picked up our street cleaners are the buzzards like that's just the way it is this cat got hit my boyfriend said you know i don't think he ever picked up that cat and sure enough we go on a bike ride and the cat had gotten pushed over to the side and it was in front of the mailbox And at that point, it had been picked over, and there wasn't much left, and it was just kind of a skeleton with a little bit of fur. They were getting their mail. I mean, that's the thing. It wasn't like nobody lived there. Their dead cat was lying directly in front of the mailbox, and every day they're walking outside, and they're getting their mail, and they're reaching over their dead cat. And not even bothered by that, apparently. And I was just like, (sighs) who is that? Who is that person? I got to do something with that
1: but I don't know what yeah wow did they have a lot of cats no I think you should write that totally from your imagination do not go talk to those people Mindy (laughs) oh I'm not going to (laughs) okay No. oh
0: that's heartbreaking my mom wants me to write a picture book so badly she's like oh Mindy I just want you to write a picture book about a cat I'm like mom my sensitivities I was like this is my picture (laughs) book about a cat right here that's my picture (laughs) book about a cat WordTokindle.com is an ebook and book formatting service for self-publishing authors. We make it easy and cheap to self-publish on Amazon and SmashWords. Visit word to kindle That's word-the number two-kindle.com to find out more. Lastly, the challenge of writing chapter books for the readers who are in between picture books and novels, the uses of teacher guides, and where to find Trisha online. So chapter books. Chapter Mm -hmm. books are an in-between beast. They're a step up for beginning readers graduating from picture books, but not quite carrying the bulk of a novel yet. When you're putting together something like this, how do you divide your craft between what the story needs and what the reader needs?
1: Like so much of writing it, it's harder than it looks. You know, you need to keep things simple, but you don't want to be simplistic. These are books for kids who... Yeah, they know how to read, but they need things that are going to make them want to turn the pages. So you need suspense, and you need action, and you need humor. Usually you need characters that you can return to because most of these books are series. Doing all that in 12,000 words, it's challenging. My most recent series is the Cody books. I write about heavy duty stuff. I write about conscience and empathy and push and pull of becoming an independent, you know, stuff that all kids deal with at all the stages of growing up in a way that I'm not with my middle grade novels. I'm very conscious of the length of the sentences and the paragraphs and Mm -hmm. the chapters. I'm always offering hope in all my books, in the my middle grade novels also, but in the chapter books I work a little harder to keep the tone upbeat and middle grade novels are a lot more angsty. It's a great yin and yang for me to write the chapter books and to write the middle grade novels. They sort of balance each other out in ways because I'm a fairly optimistic, upbeat, happy person myself. I really enjoy writing the Cody books and they make me laugh out loud a lot while I'm writing them. And so there's a lot of pleasure for me in them. And the fourth one's coming out next month. That's fantastic. Now, do you think much about Lexile level when you're working on a chapter book? Yeah, I don't because I don't really know exactly what that is. (laughs) I do. (laughs) If I use a word like conscience, one of the Cody books really centers around Cody coming to grips with her conscience. I usually have it explained a little bit. I'll use the word and I'll use it in context. And then Cody's big brother Wyatt is the one who tells her what a conscience is. I try to give them enough context that they can get that new word and that new concept and and go with it. For the
0: listeners, Lexile level is basically the vocabulary of the book, and it's rated according to what grade level is going to understand every word in this book, more or less. So a Lexile level can be used to decide whose hands this book could go into. Well, as a librarian, I actually have a big problem with reading according to Lexile level because you learn by Learning new words that you didn't know before and using context, like you're saying, you use those context clues, it makes you a deeper reader, it makes you a better reader, it increases your comprehension, and it also makes you learn a new word. Lexile level can be useful, but I don't think it needs to be the biggest aim. Lexile does not take content into consideration at all. So, for Uh. example, the Grapes of Wrath is a sixth grade lexile level. Steinbeck doesn't use big words. That is a very mm-hmm. simply written book. Grapes of Wrath is a book that opens mm-hmm. with a dog getting hit by a semi-truck and it ends with a young woman breastfeeding an 80-year-old man. So <laughs> so do you want to give that to a sixth grader simply because they know all the words in it? Probably not.
1: Another cool thing with chapter books that I should mention is that they're pretty heavily illustrated. Not to the extent of a picture book, of course, every couple of pages, there's going to be some great black and white drawing. Those are really also helpful for kids that are on this cusp of going into reading the 300-page novel. They get a lot of clues from the drawings. Eliza Wheeler, who's the illustrator who does my Cody books, she wraps the text around the picture, puts the text across a double-page spread. She's just really inventive in making the pages look so inviting Mm -hmm. and reader-friendly. I think that goes a long way, too, to pulling kids into these books.
0: When I'm working with the younger kids, I would see them turn a page where there was no illustrations, and they would see those blocks of text, and they would just be defeated. Because yeah. it does open yeah. up the text to them and they can see that picture and they're like, oh, okay, I'm going to get a break. You know, your reluctant <laughs> yeah. readers, it's still illuminating the story for them and they're still using their brain and it's opening up mm-hmm. the text. Decoding. All yeah. of those things are at work yeah. when they're looking at a break in the text. It's useful to them and helpful to them. And some of them, especially the more reluctant readers, they need that. You have teaching guides for quite a few of your books on your website. So mm-hmm. do you feel that those help you get your work
1: into classrooms and libraries? You know, I'm not really sure if the teaching guides help. I mean, I hope they do. But I know that there are a lot of writers that work hard on getting teaching guides that, you know, speak directly to the classroom goals. And mine are more discussion and activity oriented. I see so many teachers working really hard to to still to get the pleasure of reading into the classroom and put the right book into the right kids' hands and to help build those lifelong readers. I'm more a little in sync with that than I am with how books can meet standards and stuff. It's a hard question for me to answer.
0: No, I agree with you. I find that having guides that meet common core standards, etc., can help because it's helping the teacher reach a benchmark that they are supposed to meet. But on my end, and I'm fairly certain on their end too, that's not what they care
1: about. They care about getting a book that a kid wants to read in front of them. I did have one really cool thing happen. The State Library of Ohio, I guess they chose Moonpenny Island, my book to be a choose to read Ohio book. Yeah. Um, Kelly's Island is is the inspiration for that book, the real island here in Ohio, and I think that's partly why they decided to use it because it has a lot about the geology of Ohio. So they made this incredible. Toolkit that teachers can use in their classrooms, and I have with not only discussion questions and research questions, but and questions of things that really relate directly to kids' own lives, and that they can write in response to fossil hunting kind of activities and stuff. Teachers are really happy to find that Ohio teachers are.
0: If you're a teacher and you're listening, check out the Choose to Read Ohio website. If you just Google it, it'll pop it up, and they have toolkits for all of the books, from
1: picture books to adult. Right, they're the best I've seen. Really, they're wonderful. What is up for you next?
0: What do you have coming out this year? And where can people find you online?
1: Sadly, the last book in the Cody series is coming out in April. It's called Cody and the Heart of a Champion. Cody tries her foot at soccer. When I go to schools, one of the burning questions that kids ask me is, is Wyatt, her big brother, is he ever going to win the heart of Peyton Underwood, the girl of his dreams? And you will find out the answer to that in (laughs) this book, Cody and the Heart of a Champion. And again, it's illustrated by the genius Eliza Wheeler. So that comes out in early April. And I'm struggling with the third or fourth, or I don't even really want to keep count of how many drafts, of a new middle grade novel. And it's about a girl. Her name is Loa. Her mother is a famous ornithologist and um, the loa bird is possibly extinct, mm-hmm. although her mother hopes not. And her mother's off on a big expedition to try to see if there is a Loa bird still out there. And meanwhile, Loa the human is a very home much of a homebody, not adventurous kid, and she's home left back home with her two caretakers who are the ancient miss rinker and her brother theo a lot of stuff starts to happen my idea for the book is that we're all on expeditions in life some are very big and public and dramatic and some are much smaller and humbler and yet just as important so i'm trying to write that so where can listeners find you online i have a website trishaspringstub.com i'm on facebook on twitter at spring stub i'm sort of on instagram except i always forget that i'm on instagram so i forget (laughs) i have a blog that you can access through my website yeah and i'm out there i'm going to schools i'm going to awp next week for the first time i'm really excited about that and i'm really happy to have had this chance to connect with you oh yeah absolutely
0: no problem Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbell. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting gofundme.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist.